Thanks, Craig. Hopefully you have your Bibles out. We're going to walk through this text. I encourage you to follow along. There's a listening guide uh, that you were hopefully handed as you walked in. Your worship guide has a listening guide. If you did not bring a Bible, that's okay. Pull out an iPhone or smartphone and go to the app store and you can download a free Bible app. And the notes for today's message are actually in that first one that pops up, Bible.com, otherwise known as Version, has a tab. If you'll download it, install it on your phone, uh, it will actually have a tab that says events. And you're going to see today's message simply called a surprising reversal. Last week, we covered Hosea chapter 1. This week, we cover Hosea chapter 2. Last week was a strange relationship. God, in getting his people to respond, responds to their unfaithfulness with a strange relationship, chapter 2. It was a relationship of marriage between a preacher and a prostitute, and we talked about that. Um, But today, we're going to see God once again saying, respond to me as I am responsive to you, all right? I have unfailing love, and your unfaithfulness, I respond to you with unfailing love. So please, you're going to see it five times. Respond, respond, respond. Uh, this is a type of book that grabs you by your lapel, grabs you by your, your shirt collar and shakes you and says, pay attention. There's a, there's a certain amount of shock value to this text. Question, why is it called a minor prophet? There's 12 of them. Did you know that? It's like the apostles, just like the tribes. There's 12 minor prophets. Why are they called minor prophets? Well, it has nothing to do with the weight of the message, all right, or the length Uh, of time that they served. The major prophets weren't some sort of God's superheroes and the minor prophets some second-class ministers, right? It's not that one was super spiritual and one wasn't. No, they are called minor because of the length of the book alone, all right? So you learned something already today, didn't you? Called minor because of the length of the book. Hosea chapter 2. Hosea chapter 2 is one of the most remarkable texts in your Old Testament. It is a major shift from this strange relationship to this surprising reversal. It is a a shift. Um, I I do a lot of weddings. Matter of fact, doing one next week, and uh, there there's there's a lot of sweetness to weddings, but it's very rarely more sweet than when I get to remarry a couple that went through a divorce. I love that. It's only happened four or five times in my uh, couple of decades of work, but oh, it's so precious when that happens. In this text, you could call this a re-betrothal. I can't help but think of the the most shocking one I've heard. In the 70s, there was a couple in Cincinnati, Dallas and Irene Sherman. Um, They had a rocky relationship, marriage. They fought a lot. During one of their many fights, uh, Irene deliberately wrecked two of their cars, and that was the last straw for Dallas. He filed for divorce. Um, but as time went on, he, he found that he couldn't live without her. And so eventually they started dating again. They were reconciled. They, they got remarried. But it wasn't long before that that they were arguing again. And in this time, it escalated. And Irene actually shot Dallas twice, once in the chest and once in the hand. Now, she, he, he eventually recovered. And when he did, he summarily divorced her a second time. Um. She was put on probation. After she got off probation, they started seeing each other again, started dating, and Irene shot him again. 
But he must really love her because he married her in 1977. They married for the third time. All right? Now, that kind of volatile relationship is a great illustration of the relationship between Israel and God. They had that kind of relationship. We know all that God did for the Israelites. He, he found them in slavery, heard them in their cries, came in through great works of miracles under Moses, brought them out, fed them uh, through the wilderness experience, got water out of a rock, brought them into the promised land under General Joshua, fought their enemies, first battle of Jericho, the walls just fell down at his might. Fast forward, all the enemies fell at the people's feet. It became a land of great bounty, a land flowing with milk and honey. If you, if you go to Israel with us next year, uh, the fruit, right, Wendy? The fruit is insane. The vegetables and the fruit, it is unbelievably fertile land. They call it the Fertile Crescent. God provided that for them. But with all that, over and over again, the Israelites rebelled. Over and over again, they, they turned their back on him. Over and over again, they rejected him. And so how, how do you respond as God? See, the title of the series is called Respond. All the major prophet, minor prophets have some sort of response from humanity, but it's God that takes the initiative. He is responding to us in our unfaithfulness. As a good parent, you do this. You respond to your kids. If they do something, you don't just let it go by the wayside. Right? They might feel like you don't like them, you don't love them, but discipline actually says you do love them. Because when you don't love them, when you don't care about them, that's when you ignore Right? And so God is going to, in this chapter, going to discipline. In chapter 1, you hear about Gomer, and her, her name means complete, and she is an illustration of the fact that Israel was complete with God. God was complete with her, but she was unfaithful to him. And her kids didn't look like the husband. She wandered. The kids' names showed that level of wandering and that unfaithfulness. They were complete with God, but the offspring didn't look like him. Sounds like many in the church today. Chapter 2 is the shift. This chapter is divided into three sections, and I would divide them based on the therefore. So if you're going to circle something, maybe grab a pen and circle therefore in verse 6, verse 9, verse 14. Now, let me tell you about therefore. In the Ah-Me prophets, these writing prophets before the exile... A-H-M-I, Amos, Hosea, Micah, Isaiah. Micah and Isaiah in the south and these guys, Amos and Hosea in the north. They, they use the word therefore over and over and over again. By the time they get to the major prophets, Ezekiel will use it 51 times. And without fail, in the written prophets, it is a word that precedes a punishment. So therefore, you ask the question, what is it therefore? God is responding to something they did, and then he does something, and then what are they to do to respond? We might say God does things to you to do things in you to do things through you. Or God did something, and you reacted wrongly, and so God disciplines to correct your behavior. That's what you're going to get here in this text. The gospel according to Hosea, his unfailing love for a faithful people. You know, this is a re Betrothal. This is a text where you have language of divorce and remarriage. Every 26 seconds in America, somebody goes through a divorce. Did you know that? Of course, divorces are given for all kinds of reasons, but you know the one that most people say. What do they say? 
We just fell out of love, right? Have you heard that? We just don't love each other as we once did. As a society, we've, we have come to believe that romantic feelings of love, when they've cooled, the, the relationship is no longer valid. The problem with that is that's not how the Bible lays it out. The Bible says marriage relationships are based on a promise, not on a passion. When the passion dies, the relationship continues because of the promise. In other words, let me say it like this. It's not your love that sustains the commitment. It's your commitment that should sustain the love. Say that out loud with me. It's on the screen. It's not your love that sustains your commitment. It's your commitment that sustains your love. It's the same with God. Marriage is meant to be a signpost, a neon sign to show you what a relationship with God is like. That's why he hates divorce is because his relationship is that he would not divorce you. Here in Israel's life, there is a threat of divorce here. And there is in some senses, in some sense, a divorce decree. But the expression of God's love from chapter 1 to chapter 2 is absolutely unconditional. But our enjoyment... Israel's enjoyment of that love and the people of God throughout all time, our enjoyment of that love is conditional. It's conditional upon your faith and upon your obedience. So his love is unconditional, but your enjoyment is not. Chapter 2, verse 1, he begins with a shocking verse. Remember what the kids were called in the previous chapter. He says, say to your brothers now, Ami and your sisters, Ruhamah. What were they called in the previous chapter? They were called lo Ami, not my people. He says now, in a reversal of names, name them my people again. lo Ruhamah was what we learned in chapter one. He says, in this great reversal of relationship, he says, they are Ruhamah. They are my loved ones. They aren't rejected, not, no compassion. No, they are received. Complete reconciliation. Can God do that today? Can God take someone who is not his, someone who is not loved by him and their reality of their experience. They don't feel loved by God. They don't feel noticed by God. They feel estranged from God, alienated, and can he reconcile them to himself? Yeah, these new names reflect the nation's new relationship with God, and that is, according to the New Testament, the relationship that the church has. We have a ministry of reconciliation for all of us, And all of them, as they come into faith in Christ, they are sons of the living God. Judah and Israel, according to this text, will one day be reunited as one nation under God's ruler. We saw that at the end of chapter 1, the Messiah. Jezreel here, um, I didn't tell you this last week, but the name Jezreel, the shock value of it, it was was like the name Columbine or Manson, right? Naming your child Branch Davidians, you remember that cult? Right, With that is a shock value, but the name means sowing. And he says, I'm changing your name back to that. It doesn't mean slaughter, because a great slaughter occurred in Jezreel. By the end of this chapter, chapter 2, verse 23, he will say Jezreel will be again a place for sowing, where God will joyfully sow his people back into the land and cause them to be prosperous again. But we've got to get from point A to point C. And point B... Pain and failure. We're going to get there in his discipline. But let's look at the, the relationship reversing here. So we looked at the names reversing, now the reversal of the relationship. Back to the present, chapter 2, verse 2. 
God tells Hosea to give a last call to Israel. The Ami prophets, these writing prophets did that. The next thing you're going to hear after this last call, Israel, is the Assyrian war drums. You're going to hear swords against shields. That's the next thing you're going to hear. This is the last call. Maybe you thought God was bluffing, but he's not. He said, I, he's going to say here, I promised you under the Mosaic law that if you went after idols, I will take the land that I gave from you. I will take it from you. I'm going to do it. Verse 2. He says, before I do that, verse 2, contend with your mother. Contend. Who's the mother here? It's not Gomer. He's going to talk about her being in the wilderness and <coughs> language that relates to um, Israel. This is Israel. He says, Hosea, go to Israel. Go to your mother. God's holiness is at stake here. We think of Hosea as a prophet of love. He says, the divine love of God is holy love. He says, I want you to contend with your mother about what she's doing. I want you to stand up. I don't want you to hide your light under a bushel. I want you to shine on a hill. I want you to stand up and tell them what they're doing. Don't minimize the holiness of God. This prophet doesn't. He stands up. We're told God is love in 1 John 4, 8. But we're told in 1 John 1, 5 that God is light and whom there is no darkness. He is love and he is light. So it's holy love. He's going to point out three particular sins. All right? He's going to talk to her about her idolatry. He's going to assume her immorality. But he's going to talk to her about her idolatry, her ingratitude, and her insincerity, her hypocrisy. Let's look. You contend, you warn, here's what's coming. For she is not my wife, verse two, and I am not her husband. That's a certificate of divorce. I am about to put you aside as my wife. In your infidelity, I'm gonna put you aside. This is language of the Hebrews of a divorce decree. They didn't have the courts. They didn't have lawyers and all that. They had a statement that they would make in issuing a divorce, and this is it. You are not my wife anymore. You are not my husband. I am not your husband. And let her put away her harlotry from her face. I'm about to divorce you. Put away your harlotry. And her adultery between her, her heart, her, her breast, that's kind of the idea that she is, Israel is, was bold in their open renunciation of God. They were public about it. They were not just public, they were unashamed of their sin. He said, Israel, you have no ability to blush anymore. There's no shock value. So Hosea, go tell her that. Tell her because there's a warning, verse three, or I will strip her naked and expose her as on the day when she was born. When was she born? When was Israel born? Was it with the birth of the 12 sons of Isaac or Jacob who eventually became Israel? No, she was born as a nation when the people were taken out of Egypt. She was born as a nation at Mount Sinai when they received this Mosaic covenant and they became the people of God at that place. Two million, one million to two million strong coming out of Egypt in slavery. So like when God rescued you from Egypt, when you were in bondage and you had nothing, he rescued you, he made you prosper. Does that sound familiar? He said, well, I'm gonna take you back to that place where you started. I'm gonna take you back to a place when you had nothing. I will also make her like a wilderness. Next step, go from Egypt, Mount Sinai, 
Kadesh Barnea, they send the 12 spies in. They say, God's a liar. 10 spies come back, say the land's too big. The people are too big. Caleb and Joshua said, no, we can take it. 10 say, no, we can't. God has lied to us. And God says, 38 years, hit the reset button, wilderness. I'm gonna, I'm gonna retrace your steps to the place where you had nothing and you were in the wilderness. Make her like desert land and slay her with, with thirst. The reason he will do this is because the more God blessed them, the further the nation went from them. The further the nation gets from God is, this, is in this blessing. He gives them more and they go further away. He gives them more and they go further away. You cannot get a course correction on a spoiled child by giving them more of the thing that spoils them. That's parenting 101. When you wanna teach somebody something, a child especially, how not to be running after things they shouldn't be running after, ungrateful for things that they should be grateful for, you take, you pull away. So verse four, also I will have no compassion on her children because they are children of harlotry. They're not my kids. I do not have to write checks for your, I don't have to, I don't have to fund that check that you wrote for some other lover. Verse five, for their mother has played the harlot. She has conceived them and acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers. In other words, read false lovers. What's the biblical word for things that we run after that are things we should not run after other than God? Things other than God that we put in his place and we run after them. Call that idolatry. We've gotten really sophisticated in America in our idols. They've gotten a little glitzier, a little more glamorous, a little less supernatural and superstitious, but they are still idols. Your heart, as a person born of the nature of Adam, your heart is an idol-making factory. And we daily, minute by minute, put things in the place of God. So idolatry. He's pointing that out. God had blessed Israel, but they were guilty of worshiping pagan gods. In particular, Baal, the fertility god. Baal, Baal's worship instead of God is basically the worship of nature. And whenever there was a drought or a famine in the, in the land, the Jews repeatedly went to Baal for help instead of going to the Lord. And in these worship services that they had for the pagan god Baal, they had sensual fertility rites. There were male and female prostitutes. So they were provided in a very literal sense, in a very symbolic sense as well. Idolatry means prostitution. You should be giving yourself to God, but you give yourself to this, this job, this hobby, this lust, this addiction, this fun, this libation, this other thing gets your time and your energy. It gets your joy. It's the happy hour that you go to. Instead of going to God, you go here. And in the case of Israel, since the people were acting like prostitutes, God would treat them like prostitutes and he would shame them publicly. He would no longer claim the nation as his wife because they had broken the solemn marriage covenant and consorted with idols. According to the Hebrew, Hebrew law, what is the punishment for, idol, for, for, for adultery? Let's start with that one. What's the punishment for adultery? Capital punishment. You kill them. The punishment for idolatry. Capital punishment. Here, he's not call, calling for that. He's not calling for them to die in this text, but what he wants you to see is he wants you to see this is a serious sin. 
Just like unfaithfulness between you and your spouse is a serious sin. If your husband says to you, well, I'm 90% faithful to my wife, that means you're unfaithful. No, God says, the more patient I am with you, the more ignorant you become, so I'm about to pull the plug. Isn't it ironic, though, that the very people we go to in affairs that we think will give us something our spouse doesn't give us from, we end up getting a little taste of it, but we lose everything else. The very sustainability, the very um, dependability that we need in relationships, we cannot get when we cut and run from the marriage of 26 years or 10 years or whatever it is. In the same way, I see people of God today courting lovers other than God and settling for something that doesn't, is not sustainable and does not provide the kind of significance that life provides. But look at how deceived they are. Look at the rest of verse five. For she said, I will go after my lovers. <laughs> look at the deception. Who give me bread and my water, my wool, my flax, my oil, my drink. Really? Your, your false ball gives you all that? The, the God who is no God? Verse six, therefore. Therefore, God disciplines. The first two therefores are, are discipline therefores. Here's punishment. God disciplines Israel through failure. Failure is the solution. I will let you experience life without the Father. I will let you experience pain. Only pain can blow the, the, away the smoke of your illusions. Only pain. Verse six, behold, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her past. I will frustrate her. She will go to those lovers and the very thing she thinks she's getting from them, they will not provide. You sell your soul to your job and it will not provide you satisfaction because I'm trying to get you to come back to me. You sell your soul to that lust and that website and whatever it is, it will have a law of diminishing returns and you will not be satisfied until you end up that very thing destroying you. This is a good news, bad news scenario in this, in this verse 6. Um, this punishment, hedging up Israel's way with thorns, it sounds like a punishment, but it's not punishment for punishment's sake. It is it's not God being vindictive. This is, this is a good thing and a bad thing. In their culture, they put up thorn bushes like fences. If they wanted to keep the sheep out of a certain area around the house, they would set up thorn bushes like we do in our modern world in terms of, of maybe hot wire fences, right, electric fences. We have one around one of our pastors, and I was like, man, that's a lot of money they put in this new house that we bought. They have this fence. That's a lot of money. I don't know why we need that. And just last week, right, typical of humanity, I have a, we have a big red horse who's tall and long, and I'm driving down the road, and the grass is gorgeous inside the paddock, and he is leaning over the fence, eating the grass on the other side of the fence. And he's, he's huge, so he's starting to push on the fence. And my wife goes, that's why the electric fence is there, to keep the horses outside from getting that grass is greener on the other side. So I'm going to turn it on this week. Hopefully it still works. And I'll know it works when that big red horse gets a 1,300-pound shock of his body, right? He's 1,300 pounds, and when that whole body gets shocked, it won't hurt him, but it will create a hedge, and that's what you have here, right? You have that here. So God clearly states that he's hedging Israel in for the purpose of creating frustration. Look at verse 7. She will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them, and she will seek them, 
but will not find them. Frustration. Then she will say, I will go back to my first husband. I'm going to go back to God. For it was better for me than it is now. Now, all this has to do with the exile. When the ten tribes of the north, remember we're talking, this is a prophecy for the ten tribes of the north. Judah and Benjamin in the south will be prophesied by somebody else. But Hosea is talking to the ten of the north. And he basically says, when Assyria has taken you out and you're alienated from God, from the temple, and from the land, you'll have a wake-up call. Verse 8, for she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain. She's ignorant. And the more I give her, the more ignorant she gets. So I'm going to take the new wine, the oil. I lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for, what does it say? I gave her all these things and she used it for, what does it say? Ball, not me, a false God. Second, therefore, therefore, I will take back my grain at harvest time and my new wine in its season. I will also take away my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. See, this is the sin of ingratitude. God gave it and they gave thanks to Baal or they, or they used it for Baal. They didn't give thanks to God. How do you teach? We talked about, we had a whole sermon on this this summer. On Family Inc. series, we talked about how do you teach a child gratitude? How do you teach them to be thankful? You take a spoiled child who's not thankful and you take back the things that you gave. You cannot give more and make a spoiled child all of a sudden grateful by giving them more stuff. That doesn't work. All of you have tried it if you're parents and it doesn't work. It, it doesn't make sense even. No, you take from. So instead of thanking God for the blessings of food, water, and clothing, they thank these false gods. God provided the rain, they gave credit to Baal. So what, what, what wickedness it is to take the gifts of God and to use them to worship false gods. That is wickedness. And over 15 times, I've counted in study in the Bible, 15 times you are commanded to give thanks to the Lord. It takes a command. It takes a hot wire of removal of blessing for you to recognize that the very breath you breathe, God could take that from you. Right, you've heard me say this a trillion times. You don't realize God is all you need till God is all you got. And then you're thankful. I see some people shaking their heads. I see some people that went through cancer, struggles, shaking their heads. I see some people that have gone through some rough marriage issues, some medical issues, some financial issues. You shake your head. That's when you learn thankfulness. God is going to put them in a fetal sack of exile where they will be forced to see him and be thankful to him or perish because he's all they'll have. Verse 10, and then I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers and no one will rescue her out of my hand. I will also put an end to all her gaiety, her feasts, her new moons. Catch verse 11, catch what it's saying, right? Don't just look and not see, all right? What is verse 11 saying? Look, I will put an end to all her gaiety, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her festal assemblies. What is he saying? He said, they've been worshiping Baal all along while going through religious motions. They have been having false lovers while going through the motions of religious festivals. Verse 12, I will destroy her vines, her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me, and I will make them a forest. And the beasts of the field will devour them. That's Assyria. Assyria will devour them. I will punish her for the days of the balls when she used to offer sacrifices to them and adorn herself with her earrings and jewelry and follow her lovers so that she forgot me, declares the Lord. Going through 
the motions of religion while all the while having pagan idolatry. Can that coexist? Not for long. We call this hypocrisy. And when the pain comes, the hypocrite's facade falls off. So you want to prove if you're the real deal? Pain and suffering proves the fakes. The facade always comes off. I had you write the word insincerity. God says, I'm going to stop it. I'd rather have no religion than the syncretistic, bastardized religion that you're giving me. I'd rather have no religion. People still enjoying their Hebrew festivals, but in their hearts giving glory to Baal. Outrageous. God is holy. He is holy in his love, and he will not permit his people to enjoy sin too long. He will not let you live on substitutes. That's Old and New Testament. Him and him alone. Eight times the Bible says, be holy as I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Question, is it possible, think about this, is it possible for God to take his child doing evil and then use a greater evil in his life to weld it like a servant and to use that evil in his life to get a hold of him and then to judge the very evil that he used? Is that possible? Yes, it is. Read Assyria. He will use Assyria. How would the Bible say it? Is the axe to boast itself above the one who wields it? It's talking about Assyria. God will use the axe of Assyria and then he will judge Assyria. Can God use pagans to judge his children? Yes, he can. And he does. Look at that list. Idolatry, ingratitude, insincerity, not to mention immorality. Now don't read the next verse. What, what would you do if this was your lover, your spouse, and they didn't listen? You said, contend, 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 stand up, speak up, it's gonna happen, and then they don't do anything about it, no response. I told you this is a surprising reversal. See, see I would use the word, my wife always uses, she uses the word done. She gets to a certain point, she's, she even spells it sometimes, D-O-N-E, and it gets like five syllables, done. Right? She gets to that point, and you know she's, say it with me, done. (laughs) It's not what God does. That's what I would do. Look at the next verse. Feel this. Feel this reversal. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will woo her. There's your hope. I will bring her into the wilderness. I I will go into her wilderness. In the middle of her pain, her ears are open. I've melted the wax in her ears so she can hear me and I'm not going to yell at her. I'm gonna speak tenderly to her. Hebrew here and speaking tenderly says, speak to her heart. You will now hear me. Can pain do that to you? Can it get you to the point where you're willing and able to hear from God? Yeah, absolutely. From condemnation, we have a shift under God's holiness to grace under God's love. This is gracious, this is gracious. Here's the only hope you're gonna have, remarriage. You're gonna come back, Israel, you're gonna come back under my initiative and you're gonna be reconciled to your God. The three children taught us about the grace of God. Gomer teaches us about the holiness of God. Hosea teaches us about how holiness and and love come together. He is a great lover. I love the words of Kyle M. Yates. He says, Hosea takes the place among the greatest lovers of all ages, his love was so strong 
that the vilest of behaviors could not dull it. Gomer broke his heart, but she made it possible for him to give to the world a picture of the heart of the divine lover. And all these languages, all these, all these phrases you're about to read, we, 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 we say these kind of phrases at weddings. And in this re-betrothal, he says, I will. Do you take him? Do you take her? I will. Will you be there? I will. There's going to be five of them. The first is, you've seen it, I will allure. This is the idea of wooing. He woos her. He seeks her. This is what he's doing now. He is seeking both Jew and Gentile in this church age, and he is courting them. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus coined a term. He said in this 20 century lapse between the people getting kicked out and Israel giving their Messiah and they reject the Messiah to this second coming of the Messiah, this 20 century gap is called the church age, but it goes by another name. From the book of Daniel forward, when Babylon would take over and then the Medes and the Persians would take over, then the Greeks would take over Jerusalem and then the Romans would take over Jerusalem. He calls this, Jesus calls this, the time of the Gentiles. But there will come a day when he reconvenes his program for Israel and here is where he does it. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive into all nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the Gentile times are fulfilled. Verse 15, I will give her her vineyards from there. Where's there? Where's there? From the wilderness. And the valley of Acre as a door of hope. Now let me explain that. This is a great phrase. You know, if you know your Old Testament, where is the valley of Acre? Does that sound familiar? I preached a series last year through the book of Joshua. The valley of Acre is named after the man and his family and their sheep, and everything was slain there. His name was Achan. Israel had been there watching as God won the battle of Jericho. It's said at the chapter seven of, of, of chapter six that the, the walls didn't fall down. The better Hebrew phrase is that they were smashed by a divine hand, and Israel starts boasting. Oh, look at what we did. And Achan takes some of the booty for himself, some of the treasure for himself. They were told to leave Jericho, the battle of Jericho, leave it as a tithe. Like of these 10 nations, the first nation to be conquered is the Lord's. Achan, in his boast, took some of that and he was judged for it. He was killed and he was slain. It was a place, you know what the name Achan means? It means trouble. Don't name your kid trouble. Right? Heavens, don't name your kid that. All right? He was a place of trouble and the valley of trouble is now. Look at verse 15. What does it become? What does your Bible say? The valley of Acre becomes a door of hope. See, this pain that we're talking about, this suffering, this, this divine discipline is a harbinger. Love is God's harbinger of hope. He loves you enough to not let you go into these false lovers' beds. And this place of trouble will be a door of hope. You know what this is? You know what theologians say the door, the, the valley of Acre is? And I agree with it. This is the tribulation period. This is the seven-year tribulation that's coming. Seven years of woe, the, the missing week of Daniel, the day of Jacob's trouble. This is, this is a seven-year period of time when it will get so intense in this trial, in this tra tragedy, in this tribulation, that the people of Israel will stand up. And it says in 
chapter 6 of Revelation to chapter 19, that there will be a great revival in this day of Jacob's trouble, in this valley of Achor, and it will turn into a door of hope. And it says 144,000 Paul-like evangelists will hit the planet. That's how God will get a hold of them. God will turn them around. Great revival of the Israelites. That's this valley of Achor. It's a beauty to ashes stories. Right, so, so the second phrase, I will give. I will give what? He says, I will give them restoration. It will go in pain. He will meet you in the wilderness, but he will give you restoration. He guarantees them a return. Beautiful. Now look at their response. And she will sing. Literally in Hebrew, it says, she will give the answer. What's, what's the language of this chapter? It's betrothal. God has gotten in the middle of her pain and suffering on a knee and said, will you marry me? And she sings and she says yes to his proposal. She sings. There as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt, does she respond to his response? You better believe she does. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi. You know what that means? We learn this in Hebrew 101. Ish means man, Isha means woman. This is a, if you have an NIV, it goes ahead and translates it for you, my husband. Ishi is like calling your husband my man. Tried to get Wendy to call me that the other day. She wouldn't do it. My man, just call me my man. So God will get on a knee. She will sing to him and she will say, my man. How does she answer his proposal? My man. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. She will sense the distance he came to her and she will call him my man. And will no longer, she won't call him Baali. Now this is another thing Hebrew wives would say to their husbands. They would call him my master. I wasn't even going to try that with Wendy, by the way. <laughs> Both terms are used. But here, they will be so offended by their false lover of these ball gods, these false gods, they won't even mention the word. They will take a word that has Baal's name in it, and they won't even use the word. They'll be so offended at their mention of the balls. Were you like that when you came to faith in Christ? that there was something that God rescued you from, that you were so offended by what you had lived for and done that you wouldn't even speak of it. It took me about 10 years after God rescued me out of alcoholism and a bar to even go back into a restaurant that had a bar. Because God had rescued me from all that. That wasn't me anymore. I wouldn't go into a Chili's. I wouldn't judge anybody else for going into Chili's, but at that time, I wouldn't. I'll eat there now, good food, for the most part. Right? But I went there. I wouldn't go there anymore. No, that's where they get. Verse 17, I will remove the names of the balls from their mouth so that they will, be, they will be mentioned by their names no more. So, so here's God's response. He opens their minds and their hearts through pain. He speaks tenderly to them and says to them, be reconciled. And Israel says, Ishi, my man. To the offer of reconciliation, she says, yes. And in that day, verse 18, I will also make a covenant for them with the beasts of the fields and the birds of the sky. And after the creeping things on the ground, I will abolish the bow, the sword, the war, 
and the war from the land. I will make them lie down in safety. I will take completely care of them. I will remove all their prosperity, but when they say back, I will give it back and I will bring them back. Isn't that good? I will remove, I will remove their idolatry. Verse 19, look at this. And I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness. Look at the wedding gifts. In righteousness, in justice, in loving kindness, in compassion. Those are the blessings. Everything Israel lacked in, during her years of separation from her husband, God gives back. Isn't that good? Verse 20, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. You will know me as I really am, the divine lover. You remember back in verse 7? Remember back in verse 7, she said, I will go back to my first husband, for it is better for me than now. It is now. Does that sound familiar? Luke 15, 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I will perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. It is believed by some scholars that Jesus was using Hosea chapter 2 as his inspiration for the story of the prodigal son. But do you notice, I think the parable of the prodigal son probably wasn't a parable, and I think it's misnamed. I don't think it ought to be called the prodigal son, because it's not about the reaction of the son. It's about the reaction of the father. I think it ought to be called the outrageous love of a father. And it's what you get here. Look at verse 21. It will come about in that day that I will respond. Who? Who's the reference there? God. He's going to say it five times. You come to me, I am quick. The quickness of God's mercy to answer your prayer. Daniel prays and Gabriel's tapping his foot to come down. The prodigal son turns towards the father and the father runs. The woman at the well is, is waiting there. God goes to her and he's quick. Jesus is quick to embrace the woman at the well. Verse 21, it will come about on that day at that very hour. I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens and they will respond to the earth. What is this? This is this cosmic conversation that the Lord has with the heavens and the earth. I will respond to the heavens and they will respond to the earth and the earth will respond to the grain and to the new wine and to the oil and they will respond. The heavens and the earth are cheering you on to say yes to God's divine proposal throughout all history, Israel and then his church. That's how much God wants you. And the heavens, Romans 8, the heavens await for the declaring, for the revealing of the sons of God. Who are the real sons and the real daughters that they respond to this kind of proposal? See, prodigal son is about the outrageous love of a father, the unreasonable love of the father. Luke 15, 20, and he arose and came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Another version says he girded up his loins in a disgraceful way as only lovers do. You make a fool out of yourself in your early love days, right? And in this outrageous pursuit of the father, he runs to him. Verse five, number five on my list here, I will respond. A restored universe. Verse 23, I will sow her for myself in the land and I will also have compassion on her who have not obtained compassion and I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people, that's mine. She's mine, he's mine. I will say that's mine. This is my bride. 
you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. There will be reciprocation. I will sow Jezreel. Jezreel means God sows. The image is of God sowing his people back into the land. It's beautiful. So love's harbinger of hope is that when you see the discipline of the Lord on you, he is trying to get a hold of you, and he is going to do whatever it takes. If you won't, if you won't answer to his wooing and his winning, maybe you'll answer to his pain and his discipline. God is going to do, he is not going to let you go. There's hope in that. Because of his great love for his people, even when God is to declare his displeasure and, and push his punishment, he keeps coming back to you with words of hope. He wants you. You know, I was reading the commentary on Romans by Donald Barnhouse, and he mentions Hosea in, that ch- in, in a chapter in the middle of the book of Romans. I want to read this, and we'll be done. This, to me, brought me to tears. Listen to it. Barnhouse writes, The pursuing love of God is the greatest wonder of the spiritual universe, the pursuing love of God. We leave God in the heat of our own self-desire and run from his will because we want so much to have our own way. Listen. We get to crossroads and look back in pride, thinking we have outdistanced him. Just as we are about to congratulate ourselves on our achievement of self-enthronement, we feel a touch on our arm, and our achievement is turned into a direction to look towards him. He says, my child. He says, in great tenderness, I love you. And when I saw you running away from all that is good, I pursued you through a shortcut that love knows well and awaited you here at the crossroads. And when we see this kind of love at work through the heart of Hosea, we may wonder if God is really like that. But everything in the word, everything experienced shows us that he is. He will give men the trees for the forest and he will give them iron in the ground. Then he will give man men the brains to make an axe of the iron and to cut down the tree and fashion it into a cross. And he will give man the ability to hammer nails and create a hammer itself. And then he will give man the cross and the hammer and the nails and the Lord will allow man to take a hold of him and bring him to that cross. He will stretch out his hands upon it and allow man to nail him to that cross. And in so doing, he will take the sins of man upon himself and make it possible for those who have despised and rejected him to come to him and to know the joy of sins removed and forgiven. To know the assurance of pardon and eternal life. To enter into the prospect of the hope of glory with him forever. This is even our God and there is none like him. Let's pray. Father, there's no better image, no better root metaphor in all the Bible than the unfailing lover pursuing the unfaithful. And Father, there's only two characters in that cast. We are definitely not the faithful lover. We are the ones in our great self-enthronement have run after all sorts of things that we think our will wanted. Yet you keep coming back to us with words of hope and promise. You even declare and willing to stand up and contend with us in your displeasure. You are not going to skirt around and coddle sinners. You're going to say that is bad for you. That is not right for you. And in that process, you say you are the right one for us. And you do it not with, with great clamors of swords against 
shields, you do it with the whispers of a love, a love that this world knows not except from you. Lord, your harbinger of love for us is is this kind of whatever it takes type relationship. And boy, boy, do we need you. Boy, do we want to respond right now. And I pray that if there be anybody in here that's feeling your call in such a strong, intense way that they could simply say and sing yes, yes to your proposal. Let nothing else hold them back. May they have to go through no more pain in order to get to the pleasure to know you. A pleasure that makes all these earthly joys kind of fail and and lose their gleam. I pray, I pray that you would bring new wives into your flock, Lord Jesus. Call them by by the love affair that's been sung by the redeemed for centuries. We are yours, we are Ishi. You are my man, you are my Lord, you are my master. We love you, in Jesus' name. Amen.